very much about hepatitis E, so it's a good forum to bring it up. So as many of you are HIV uh, providers as well as hepatitis C. So now we're going to spend the rest of the day back on hepatitis C, and we're delighted to uh, have Dr. Arthur Kim from uh, Harvard Medical School to talk about what's the state of the art now. And we hope that the AV works. OK, there it goes. So uh, I think I'll do what Susanna did and come down here so I'm closer to the screen. Um, can you hear me in the back OK? Great. So um, I was asked to make up a witty title for this talk. And I was assigned this state of the art uh, 2013. And in many ways, that is witty, because what I'm about to present is the state of, our, state of the art of what we can do today. Of course, 2014 will be quite different. So I think um, in many ways, this is, there's a certain irony in this title. So uh, again, I'd like to thank Marion and David and the organizers for this opportunity. Now, for some reason, it's not uh, forwarding, although it was up there a second ago. Is there a check on it again? OK. So it's advancing, but it's not showing the slide. What's going on? Slideshow. Okay, there it goes again. I don't know what happened. Okay, this is my disclosure slide. I'll risk coming away from the computer for a second. So the uh, objectives are that um, by the end of this, hopefully you'll be able to explain to a patient the rationale to treat his or her hepatitis, chronic hepatitis C infection. And uh, to understand key elements of treatment decisions in 2013, given the changing field, I thought it would be interesting to go through at least a framework for how we would treat a patient today, given what is on the horizon. So uh, pretty simple learning objectives. We do have a pre-question that um, we'd like to attempt. Um, is this uh, about to go? OK, I get a thumbs up. So successful treatment of hepatitis C in those with advanced fibrosis results in a reduction in liver-related complications of 10%, 20%, 50% or 80%. OK. So we'll return to that at the end. OK, so um, Susanna very nicely went over the natural history, but it's always good to review. And for a couple of you that may have missed the pre-meeting pre workshop, after acute infection, it is important to note that some people do clear this infection. They'll have evidence of antibody in their blood, but their RNAs will be negative. And indeed, because there's no DNA intermediate, this virus is indeed cleared from the body. And uh, that's an important um, distinction from many of the other viruses, chronic viruses, that we deal with uh, in an infectious disease uh, world. So. Uh, for the 80% who go on to chronic infection, it is important to point out that many seem to have stable or slowly progressive uh, liver disease, meaning that um, their liver disease may not reach cirrhosis in their lifetime. And a number that was shown earlier, about 20%, perhaps over 20, 30-year period, will develop cirrhosis and the complications therein. But nonetheless, given the sheer numbers of people who are infected, um, even a 20% number results in a great deal of uh, morbidity and mortality. And that morbidity comes because of 
of this inflammatory process in the liver, so this liver will be inflamed, takes much longer than the two seconds it just took to burn. And the liver turns hard, and once it's hard um, is when you see the complications of ascites, um, of esophageal varices, uh, and as well as hepatocellular carcinoma, and the patient is at risk for death. And Susanna also reviewed uh, factors that accelerate this process, and they include things such as concomitant alcohol use. So we typically tell patients to um, decrease their alcohol use or to even become teetotalers. I think in America, we're kind of used to that. We're one of the few Western countries that banned alcohol. In France, they say keep it down a little bit, you know, less than a drink a day or something. But, um, you know, there actually is a recent study that suggests that two drinks a day pretty much is associated with uh, worsened liver outcomes. The other co-epidemic to talk about uh, in terms of accelerating liver disease is NASH. And um, it was already mentioned that higher BMI or higher body mass index is a factor that reduces your responsiveness to interferon-based therapies. Um, we know that our population is also uh, undergoing an obesity epidemic. And so together, hepatitis C and um, fat in the liver is, is not a good combination. And also HIV co-infection, as well as hepatitis B, if that's also chronic. But um, in particular, HIV is a major driver of um, basically every stage of the hepatitis C natural history is worsened if you're co-infected with HIV. And things that might slow it down include, I don't throw this up there, but it's like coffee. Uh, how many of you advise that patients start coffee? Um, there actually is a study that, yeah, there's one, uh, that suggests that regular coffee use, and it doesn't matter caffeinated or decaf, may slow down things. It's generally good for the liver. So, um, well, with that, with that as um, explanation for the natural course, how do we interrupt it? And basically what we're trying to do is get people off that red pathway onto either the green pathway, perhaps by drinking enough coffee, or um, to viral clearance. Because if you can achieve viral clearance, you do go off that track, moving along the line towards uh, liver complications and death. And so the goals of therapy are listed there, where if you can achieve cure, and that is a word that I think it's important to use when talking to patients, that this is a curable disease, or a curable infection, I should say. The liver disease may not fully reverse uh, immediately, but uh, the liver does have capacity to regenerate. That's how I basically explain it. We cure the virus, the liver has a chance to rest and recuperate, perhaps regenerate. Uh, relieving symptoms, sometimes you're um, compelled to treat because of uh, rare symptoms. And usually patients don't have too many symptoms other than perhaps fatigue or, or some uh, nonspecific complaints. But if they're truly symptomatic, that's another reason to go ahead and treat. Overall, you're thinking about enhancing their quality of life. And of course, when you're giving interferon, generally you're not enhancing their quality of life in the short term. But the idea is in the long term, you will be. In other words, you will be um, uh, getting them to a better place. Now, the patient scenario, and this is also an audience response, so um, I'll go through it. This is a 47-year-old African-American man with both HIV and Hep C who presents with fatigue. He used intravenous drugs 25 years ago, has been clean for the last 15 years, and his HIV has been suppressed on a regimen which includes, includes boosted atazanavir. He is naive to hepatitis C therapy, and his HCV viral load is 7.2 log, so quite high. Um, Pretty average for an HIV co-infected patient, actually. But, um, the hepatitis C genotype is 1A. His IL-28B is TT, or that's the uh, negative allele um, at homozygosity. His current CD4 count is 500, plaintiff count is 130, ALT is 42, and AST is 50. 
So as bilirubin is 2.0, creatinine is 1.5, as INR is 1.2, and as albumin is 4.0. His ultrasound actually showed no abnormalities, which indicates the um, problem sometimes with the sensitivity of ultrasound. And he agrees to liver biopsy, which shows early cirrhosis. I see, saw a hand up. Do you have a? So um, it's just, oh no, I'll, I'll repeat this question since you're, so the question is, um, why is he on busidatazanavir since it increases his bilirubin? So there's something. So um, patients can be on this regimen. They may have chosen this regimen before there was appreciated significant liver disease. There are many patients who are co-infected on this regimen. Remember that bilirubin is not, um, so that's actually a little bit of a confounder here. Like you might look at that bilirubin and say, oh my goodness, this patient's in trouble. His meld is a bit higher than it would be if his bilirubin is normal. But in fact, the adazanavir, it's, it's more of a Gilbert's type situation where they, um, so in other words, the bilirubin is not as dangerous in this situation perhaps if it was due to cirrhosis. Okay, so the question is, what is your recommendation, Tim, regarding treatment? And of course, I could have thrown up an answer like, I want more information, but everyone would choose that. So I, I had to force you a little bit to treat with pegylated interferon ribavir. Do not use protease inhibitor due to lack of data, particularly in co-infected patients. Treat with peg interferon ribavir and a protease inhibitor. Treat with pegylated interferon and a protease inhibitor, but avoid the ribavir due to its borderline creatinine. Do not treat now or wait for better therapy. Okay, so most would offer him treatment. Okay, and um, let's see, very few avoided the, the kind of the curveball question of, of avoiding, not using ribavirin. You really do want ribavirin as part of these regimens. And there are dosing guidelines for persons with borderline creatinines or elevated um, uh, decline in renal function. Okay, so I try to distill what my thought process and when I'm talking to a patient um, to these four questions. Is there a need to treat? Is treatment effective and is it beneficial? And what are the risks of treatment? And are there alternative treatments available? A key question in 2013. So beginning with this, is there a need to treat? So one thing about hepatitis C infection, and we know that as Susanna presented, it's a major driver of liver disease in this country, the number one reason for liver transplantation, et cetera, et cetera. These are all familiar data to you. Um, it is important to note that this is a potentially fatal disease. And looking at the NHANE study, on which we base a lot of our um, hep C epidemiology in this country, um, adjusting for all of the risk factors, um, for other risk factors, chronic hepatitis C infection is associated with overall a 2.4 higher all-cause mortality And particularly a 26 times higher rate due to liver-related causes. But for non-liver-related causes, even after controlling for those liver-related causes, the mortality re rate remains higher. Um, now, this was not statistically significant here. And uh, you wonder, like, what other factors in a patient with hepatitis C might be driving things? Many patients do have concomitant depression or drug, uh, drug abuse and whatnot. Uh, it's also been increasingly appreciated that hepatitis C may uh, promote diabetes, as Susanna mentioned. Or uh, may contribute to cardiovascular outcomes, negative cardiovascular outcomes. So overall, uh, about 57.8% of all deaths and 96% of liver-related deaths in this group were attributable directly to the hepatitis C. Now, 
This is a study that um, has not been um, published yet, but um, was done by the Department of Public Health in my home state, which is Massachusetts. So there's a system called MAVEN, where cases of hepatitis C are all reported. And um, any positive test by laboratory gets automatically in there. Then it has to be confirmed um, by either additional laboratory tests that they capture or by the case report form that we return. So overall, they looked at uh, from 1992 to 2009 and extracted um, all the names and matched them um, through this uh, fuzzy match process, a computer algorithm, to the death records data that are available. So 87,000 hepatitis C cases, um, that number actually represents uh, already 1.5% of our population. That's assuming that many are underdiagnosed. So Massachusetts may have a bigger problem than the other numbers that we're talking about. We're matched against 1 million deaths in our state. And the time between hepatitis C diagnosis and death was also calculated. So the data show this, that basically, if you're hepatitis C positive in our state, that your mortality rate is highest in your 50s, almost precisely what the um, baby boomer recommendation, the rationale behind that is, is saying, that there's a bunch of people who are at risk for death, and they are dying possibly because of lack of care or lack of ability to get treatment, but also because the treatments during that time frame didn't work very well. So many patients were not cured. And normally, what you should just see is a steady, steadily increasing death rate. I don't have the controls up there. But without a reported hep C diagnosis, the mean age of death in our state was 75, whereas if you had a confirmed hepatitis C diagnosis, the mean age was 53. In other words, a loss of 22 years of life due to this chronic viral infection. Now, not every death there is due to liver disease, but um, they're working up whether uh, liver disease is the main cause of death. And that's a difficult problem, because death certificates don't always list hepatitis C or liver disease as the cause of death. It could be renal failure or other things. The mean age of diagnosis was 42 years. And um, again, the highest mortality rate was in that baby boomer area. Now, this is a slide. Many of you are HIV treaters. Yes. So you're familiar that even in the last couple decades, that HIV is still um, often a late diagnosis, meaning the CD4 count has declined and whatnot, and the patient um, uh, may die of AIDS-related complications soon afterwards. So from 2002 to 2006, you can see on the right that there were you know, between um, 50 and uh, up to 75 deaths in any given year within three years of the HIV diagnosis reported to the system. When you take the same time frame for hepatitis C, you can see, A, that the number of deaths amongst those patients is way higher, 10, 10, 10 times in magnitude higher. And um, this represents many people who are, being, who are um, dying within three years of their first positive test that hits the system. Again, late diagnosis, um, supporting the baby boomer recommendations that you said earlier. But, um, I talk about these data because I do tell patients that this is what you're facing, potentially, and um, uh, this, that this infection does take decades off, um, on average, people's lives. So the number of hepatitis C cases in our state has increased. Um, and we just happen to have people working on this problem. There are other states who probably have similar uh, data but just aren't able to count it due to lack of resources. Mortality due to hepatitis C infection currently far surpasses those with HIV infection in our state. And um, about 22 years of life loss. Yes, what's the question? Your data for hepatitis C mortality, does that take into account the proportion of patients who are homeless, mentally ill, injection drug users, have a lot of yeah. confounding factors in terms of the mortality? Right, so um, that's a great question. 
And of course, right now they are working that up. And it's a little bit hard to tell. Uh, I'm sure drug-related deaths are important. There's a lot of coexistent alcohol use and, and other factors. And there are subpopulations that are not. That being said, there are a lot of young people who might be drug overdosing as well. And so you might see a higher rate amongst hep C infected individuals amongst people who are beginning to inject. In our state, we're seeing a lot of young people who inject heroin. And um, there's up to one to 2,000 cases uh, every year in patients under 30 hitting that system that are new. So it's a staggering number. So I would say that um, that can't explain that big hump. It has to be largely driven by liver disease. And if you go to the national data suggesting a 27 times higher liver disease, when you look at other data showing that um, people in their 50s, the fifth leading cause of death is liver disease. And a lot of that probably is driven by hepatitis C. You'll see this, especially among males who are in their 50s. This, if you look at mortality data, you see heart disease, cancer, et cetera. Suddenly, liver disease pops up there in, in people in their 50s. If you look at national data. And this classic slide, which if you're not familiar with, is important from my perspective. Because really, um, there's, there's good news on this slide, meaning that HIV deaths are declining nationally. Um, but hepatitis C death, has, um, in contrast, has been relatively neglected for patients who are in the system are unsuccessfully treated and do not get off that path towards mortality. And this is largely an underestimate of hepatitis C deaths, the way this study worked. But in 2007, it crossed. And you can imagine it's just going up and up and up. So the management of hepatitis C. Okay. I have to say, jiggling the liver is not FDA approved. I have to state that very clearly. All right, so is treatment effective and beneficial for these patients? I think that's a, the next key question. Like, Does it work, doc? And just to review the FDA-approved treatments, there's conventional interferon, there's pegylated interferon. But really, the big advance um, 13 years ago was with a combination therapy with those um, weekly administered interferons and ribavirin, which became the standard of care for all genotypes. Now, the new standard of care since 2011 has been um, use of the seprevir and telaprevir for chronic genotype 1 infection. And so we'll concentrate on that case, that genotype 1 infection. Um, uh, we won't talk too much about the algorithms for two and three, but there are excellent guidelines uh, that are still available. And, and Susanna actually has a data slide regarding that in her talk. But in the interest of time, I couldn't go over all aspects of hepatitis. We'll concentrate on one. And fortunately, Susanna also went over this slide. So if you're not familiar with the various outcomes while on treatment, this just briefly reviews them. You can have a null response, meaning very little response to the interferon treatment starting at week zero, um, partial response a um, virologic response, in this case an early virologic response at week 12, um, but then an unfortunate relapse, which is the purple line, and then the blue line, which is the best case scenario. Now, it's very important to point out that that rapid virologic response, or negativity at week 4, does correlate in the pegylated interferon era with that um, sustained virologic response. Now, um, this slide is washing out a little bit, but actually the first panel was shown in Susanna's talk. Uh, this is a recent mortality study that looked at patients with hepatitis C who achieved SVR and did not achieve SVR. And what I want you to see is the divergence and about that, you know, over 80% in some cases um, uh, improved mortality or decline in hepatocytic carcinoma. But the key point I want to take is of those who did not achieve an SVR, the five-year mortality of these individuals largely who had advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis was around 10%. That's a number I discussed with patients. Tell them, well, these are the numbers we're facing if we choose to delay if you already have advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis. This is on average. There are other factors, of course. Our patient is HIV co-infected, and we know that patient may progress further. That may have pushed some of you to choose treatment for him uh, with the current therapy. But we do 
have to talk about it. And some people perceive that risk very differently. Right? Like, oh, that's nothing. I'll just take my chances with that and wait for something better. And some people are frightened to death of that number. People's senses of risks are always different. So. Now, there are many benefits from SVR. There's, of course, once you eradicate the virus, there will be no further transmission. Most of our patients who are facing treatment decisions are not at, really at high risk for further transmission. We do talk about them, um, not sharing razors and toothbrushes in the household, little pieces of advice like that. And um, we didn't really touch on sexual transmission. That's another frequent topic that comes up, but uh, I took out the slide for that. But we typically tell patients who are discordant They've been having sex this long and you haven't had it so far, you don't really have to worry about condoms so far, but there are certain practices uh, that may involve trauma or blood that, that you may want to avoid. All of, there's a huge supporting um, uh, body of data that indicate improved liver outcomes once you achieve SVR. I showed you some of those. And then um, there are some studies which are listed below. I'm sorry, that's um, a little cut off there. But if you look at those references, they do show decreases in all-cause mortality as well as um, certain other um, things such as nuance and insulin resistance. If hepatitis C causes diabetes and you take out the uh, hepatitis C, you'd naturally think that there'd be a lower rate of development of insulin resistance. And that was seen at least in one study. Now, um, the evolution up until 2001 um, was shown here with all comers and the efficacy finally exceeding 50% in 2001. But we knew that the evolution of treatment was not complete, right? So it's not fully evolved. And the predictors, which were well gone over by, again, by Susanna. Um, you can see, of course, viral uh, genotype was very important, 2,3 better than 1,4, lower viral loads, et cetera. The host, the IL-28B, being a dominant factor in terms of a host genetic response. Um, uh, females respond better. African-Americans, um, you know, the IL-28B explains about 50% of that difference between African-Americans and their Caucasian counterparts. So IL-28B is most of the story, but not necessarily all of it. And then um, younger age, less fibrosis. Ironically, it's the people with more fibrosis who need the treatment. And uh, metabolic factors are important, BMI, et cetera. Adherence is important, staying on the medications. And finally, uh, if you're HIV positive, you are less likely to respond. This slide was already shown, so sorry for the redundancy. But um, again, this just reviews the CC genotype at position um, uh, 12979860, which is the uh, commercially available test that you can send to help prognose whether patients respond to therapies. And that uh, is a true uh, result, regardless of what uh, ethnicity you're in. So then uh, let's compare our two candidates of what we could add to PEG interferon and rivavir. So we have our friend um, first, um, bosepravir, and then telaprevir. You'll use one or the other. Uh, they have activity, and they're only approved against one. They, they do have activity against two, but I'm not aware of someone who's successfully gotten that for patients. Um, I'm sure somebody has somewhere in the country, but uh, for perhaps a genotype 2 non-responder, but uh, I've never uh, had to try. The trials paired bosepravir with uh, peginiferon 2b and telaprevir with 2a. The dosing, now this is interesting because the label here will say Q7 to 9 hours with food. Many of you are probably familiar with this 20 grams of fat in particular for telaprevir, whereas bisepravir is less strict. And that means quite a bit of fat. And I have patients telling me they don't want uh, to ever see peanut butter ever again. Um, they somehow will still eat ice cream afterwards. Ice cream is fine. Now, there, I don't have a slide on this, but it turns out that last week there are some studies that support BID dosing of telaprevir. And the U European Commission has approved that dosing regimen, but it's not yet approved in the United States. 
pharmacology will be well gone over by a later talk by uh, our pharmacist, Betty Daw. And uh, pregnancy category B, so these are very similar, but here's where it starts to diverge, the duration of the PI. Citalaprovir is 12 weeks, whereas um, Bisepravir can vary depending on the response-guided therapy. Uh, the added side effects, Bisepravir, this um, bad taste in the mouth. I heard another hepatitis C expert describe that as um, spoiled wasabi at a conference, remember that? So I don't know what spoiled wasabi tastes like, but it doesn't sound very good. And of course, additional anemia, and you're talking about anemia on top of pegylated interferon-induced interferon anemia and ribavirin-induced anemia. So three drugs each that can cause uh, uh, anemia. And telaprevir, the idea of rash and pharitis, a very common side effect which has increased these anal symptoms that are problematic, and the cost. You know, these are not cheap drugs. So the um, pivotal trials, registration trials that showed that these, this, these drugs uh, added to the standard of care. So these were patients um, in the telaprevir registration trial as well as the bisepravir registration trial and the bisepravir trial stratified by African-American status. And the addition of the protease inhibitor, you can see, adds very significantly to the response rate. So this is very good news and resulted in the approval of these drugs. And um, some of the factors that we talked about earlier remained important, although you know, the effect size between them um, um, was diminished. In other words, um, viral subtype uh, turns out is important, so uh, one B's respond better to these therapies than 1As. Um, that's primarily due to a, um, a difference in the threshold to develop resistance, meaning the 1A virus only needs a one nucleotide change in one key position of the protease, whereas the 1B virus often needs two, so there's a different threshold. Uh, viral titer, there's a you know, slight difference um, in the same direction as before, where higher viral loads were slightly lower. Fibrosis status is, uh, you can see, a major effect. And this turns out to be a theme that the more disease you have, the less likely you are to respond. And IL-28B remained important in this case, where the CC was associated with the best outcomes. Now, the promise of triple therapies for non-responders really depends on the flavor of prior non-responders. So we all have patients who have tried the pegylated interferon ribavirin in the past and did not respond and have um, either, and we talked about whether they would be relapsers, partial responders, or non-responders. But um, perhaps not surprisingly, um, the more, um, uh, since you're still including interferon in this triple therapy, the um, therapy um, effectiveness declines if you don't respond well to interferon in the first place. So uh, it's not a surprising result. But it also shows you that this idea of securing 70% of genotype 1s uh, with this therapy really depends on the subgroup greatly. Because you can see it declines. If you're reaching cirrhosis in a prior null responder, suddenly you're at a 14% response rate. So the promise of our currently available therapies um, uh, do not extend to all uh, groups. And we did adjust um, these uh, a little bit uh, in the sense that we uh, I changed the genotype here from 1B to 1A. Lower viral load still makes, might make some difference. Uh, no baseline resistance, uh, meaning that um, some patients actually do have that baseline resistance already, even if they've never seen the protease inhibitor. Um, and that accounts for some of the 1B, 1A differences. But the uh, host factors, the one thing that I took off the list is HIV. And I don't show the efficacy slides. But thus far in phase two trials, um, the efficacy rates for co-infected patients for either telaprovir or are actually quite similar to their uh, mono-infected counterparts. So I actually removed that from the slide for the time being until we have more data. Now, the, Susanna went over this very well. Response-guided therapy is very important. And I do go over this um, in kind of painstaking detail. This might be the kind of 
low point of the talk where I'm going through detail, so uh, we'll get through it, though. Um, but insufficient response indicates futility. So you need to stop medications. And it's very important to do so. Follow these guidelines so you're not exposing the, the patients to additional drugs uh, and to the toxicities there, and uh, if it's not going to work. Uh, excellent responses, however, on the flip side, allow for reduction of, of the duration without compromising the ultimate SVR. Now, you have to apply that to non-serotic patients. For serotic patients, you'll always extend. And um, particularly for naive patients, that's where you can be um, more, um, uh, another area where you can be more um, able to reduce ther the therapy duration. And the non-responders, it depends on what type. So let's go through this. So this is the telaprevir um, uh, algorithm where you start all free for 12 weeks. Now, the, um, if you do not achieve uh, one, uh, less than 1,000 um, viral load, uh, then you need to stop. Okay? If you don't see that early response, there's no point in going for it. And if the um, hepatitis C does suppress, but is still barely detectable by week 24, you also need to stop. The other um, good news is that if it's undetectable or if you achieve that so-called extended RBR at weeks 4 and 12, you, you can consider a shortened course of 24 weeks. And so uh, stop there. But if you're cirrhotic uh, or you don't achieve that, you should just continue until week 48. Now, Sepervir, unfortunately, there's three different algorithms. So um, now remember there's this lead-in period that uh, Susanna well explained of four weeks. And we'll come back to the lead-in period in a moment where you give the protease I'm sorry, you give PEG-RIBA beforehand, and then layer on with the separate So in this case, the stopping rule is slightly different. It's 100 as the benchmark uh, at week 12, or after eight weeks of the separate And also, if, again, if at, by week 24 there's still some virus around, you might as well discontinue. If you're undetectable, and so the extended rapid virologic response is different here, um, where it's week 8 and 24, you can consider a shortened course of the separate 28 weeks. And then you can see the step down from Bosepivir at 36 weeks to uh, complete the total course of 48 weeks. And then um, if that's for naive patients, for patients with a prior history of non-response or partial responders, relapsers, and whatnot, there is uh, the same stopping rule. So if you're still positive at those benchmarks, you stop. But then in this case, um, the real uh, stopping point is whether you can stop at week 36 versus 48. Yes. Dr. Kim, regarding bocephavir, the four-week lead-in period, please correct me. I thought that was just to see if they respond at all to interferon ribavirin. Yeah. And couldn't you just not do that and do an IL-28B and just say, okay, this person is going to respond not to the four weeks anyway? That's a great question. So the question is, uh, just to repeat it, is um, couldn't you just use IL-28B? Well, it turns out that IL-28B um, is a predictor of that rapid virologic response, but it's not a perfect predictor. The perfect predictor is actually what happens on interferon, right? So, um, so IL-28B is, I think, most useful to, for patients on the edge to decide whether to go for it. You say, hey, look, you have the favorable genotype. Perhaps you'll get a better response. You know, it might be that one additional factor in that multifaceted discussion to have a patient go forward. You still may not achieve an RBR because it's not a 100% predictor. Does that make sense? So in other words, it's really that, that what happens there, that's the true response. When you're, when you're, that's the biologic experiment. And then finally, for this is the simplest slide with null responders and cirrhosis, where you just continue the separate for the entire 48 weeks. Now, getting back to this lead-in period, this is a very uh, key point. 
the response during this lead-in um, predicts SVR. So in other words, um, if you have a one-log drop um, uh, by week four, and this is just uh, stratified in the non-black patients of, of the SPRINT2 trial, um, A, in the PEG-RIBA arm, um, which is the blue, you can see that um, some patients have a poor response to PEG-RIBA by week four, and of course, um, they, they will have a um, poor SVR rate. If they have a great response, um, then they have a chance at SVR with the standard of care. Now, when you add bisepravir, whether it's the response-guided therapy arm or the um, full-blown bisepravir arm, you can see that, um, again, um, the better you respond in those first weeks, and it makes sense. You're using three drugs. If you're responsive, more responsive to one of them, then you will respond better to the triple therapy as well. So this gives immediate feedback to the patient. Now, I have to say, there's some patients who you can prescribe a triple therapy regimen, and they suppress by week four. Do they need that protease inhibitor? They actually have a 90% chance, perhaps, depending on their characteristics. If they're cirrhotic and whatnot, you may still want the protease inhibitor. But point being, for someone who's likely to respond for other reasons, at that point, you can perhaps even avoid the protease inhibitor. Does that make any sense? Because of that lead-in period? So there are improved SVR rates for genotype 1. This does extend to HIV co-infection so far. And we can predict response. Any questions at this stage? All right. Let's move on to what are the risks of treatment. Now, this is a very abbreviated version, but this is kind of at least has to take into account, has to be a key element of your, any treatment decision you make in medicine, but in particularly this one. And you'll hear a case-based discussion on specific risks in a moment. And of course, interferon has this long laundry list. And that's, this is what patients see, right? And this is what scares them off. And um, so really, uh, fatigue, depression, these flu-like symptoms, um, anemia, all of these things happen with um, PEG and, and RIBA. And then, um, so this is what they see, right? When they open it up and they're very frightened of it. And you do have to go through this checklist of major contraindications, and I believe these will be reviewed later in the day, but um, and it is important not to over-treat and, and miss something here and avoid patients who don't have their depression under control. Thus far, it's not uh, indicated in, in those with solid organ transplants. The interferon may precipitate rejection as the fear, um, though it is used in liver transplants with hepatitis C. Uh, other autoimmune conditions can get much worse. Psoriasis, other um, immune conditions can get much worse. So you have to think about that. Um, thyroid, unwillingness to comply with the pregnancy, um, uh, with contraception. Uh, other severe medical diseases, the, this baby boomer population is aging. They are gathering, you know, over time, they're going to gather more and more um, uh, prob problems on their list. Um, and then the, the registration trials show uh, discontinuation rates here in the telaprovir trial of uh, around 10%, the seprovir trial around 12% for the triple therapy arms. In particular, you see um, uh, a lot of discontinuations for rash in the advanced trial. And then anemia is a very common problem. The difference between people in trials, though, in the real world uh, have come out in various um, single center or double center uh, abstracts that are presenting that of, you know, in the, on, the, on the left, 454 patients who started in Dallas and Miami, uh, 21 had to, percent had to discontinue by week 12, much higher rate than in the trials. And this has been borne out in, in most of our personal experiences. And then two centers in New York, very similarly, um, they had to discontinue treatment, uh, 21%. So there's a, you've got to get people ready for this because 21% is a very high number. You have to anticipate those uh, discontinuations. Uh, really, patients do have to be motivated. 
Uh, you have to review those contraindications, uh, contraception, drug-drug interactions, a great talk um, will be coming later on that. Review the food intake plan. Um, uh, I had a, one patient who said, I don't have access to 60 grams of fat a day. I really don't. I don't have that much food, food um, because of my, my financial situation. And anticipate all these side effects, including pretreatment workup, consider cardiac, car, cardiac risk factors. You may unmask uh, hidden coronary artery disease as patients become more anemic. Uh, support system, time off work. All of these are, are major discussions to have. Okay, so we had two choices in 2000, last year, 2012. I'm going to get rid of this slide shortly. So um, one, uh, just to review, uh, causes the other party a bad taste in the mouth, and the other causes the, the other party to break out in a rash. So now um, we're going to get a great talk later going over the alternative, which is really in the future. So what you're talking about is not an alternative treatment now, but what's going to be available shortly. And the list of compounds, and we're not going to go through these because they're going to be gone over later. Each and every one, right, Susanna? No, just kidding. Just a few of these will be gone over. And um, this is going to be, this is what's going on. I mean, 2016 is wide open. We don't know which of those candidates are going to make it, but many of them look very promising, right? So um, <laughs> I tried to put equal representation up there. But, um, Anyways, um, so we are finally reaching this point of this fully evolved therapy, a high potency, perhaps once daily. If you had to design a therapy, this is how you make it, right? Uh, even in fixed dose combinations, one pill once a day, tolerable, shorter duration, little resistance. You can overcome resistance um, by using multiple agents. We know that from HIV. I say less cost. We know these, these drugs are going to be more expensive at first, but we don't know the future. If enough get out there, perhaps that uh, the uh, competition may drive down costs. That would be the ideal. I think we'll have high cost um, uh, for a while. So the last few minutes are just spent on how I think through this again, just to review. So first, you've got to confirm the hepatitis C disease. I'll review. Um, I'll particularly go over genotype 1. Now, in the interest of time, I took out slides on how to assess fibrosis stage, which really is a talk in and of itself. So, um, so we don't have that for you today. But on exam, Got to check them over, look for signs of cirrhosis, look at the labs, look at those little clues. Like in that other patient, the OT was higher than the PT, and the, um, his bilirubin was confounded. But you, you need to look at those labs. Liver imaging, and then fibrosis staging. And I don't specifically put liver biopsy there, because there are these non-invasive tests that are being increasingly used. Now, decompensated cirrhosis just needs to go to a hepatologist and uh, potential for transplant, because you can't really treat there. Compensated cirrhosis, you need to make sure before you start treatment that they go through the care uh, that you're about to hear about um, from uh, Dr. Peters. And, um, but if they pass those tests, perhaps they can be treated uh, if they're cirrhotic. Now, mild disease, I have to say, most, patient, most um, experts will say to consider strongly deferral. Um, Talk to them about minimizing other liver insults, prevent HIV, alcohol, uh, excessive alcohol use. You might refer them to clinical trials. Um, and then moderate disease is where we're in between, where you're really weighing the risk and benefit of therapy. And that's a key place where IL-28B might be, because you don't know how the patient is going to respond, that's a key place where you might um, send that test. Now, so who am I treating? Well, those who are at high risk for progression. And I think many of you already chose that for that other patient, that that patient is HIV positive, is at high risk for liver events in the near-term future. He deserves, perhaps, an attempt at therapy, even if he has negative characteristics, like il 28 p status and whatnot. They're symptomatically reviewed. Now, the easy to treat, so this is a long list, but there are some patients who might be kind of easier to treat. 
and have a very high rate of SVR. Now, recently acquired infection is another key element um, that uh, Susanna alluded to, um, that those patients um, are, are really easy to treat. In fact, many of them are younger. They, were, they don't have as many toxicities with the therapies, et cetera, in my experience. Prevention of transmission is one area. We have many women of childbearing age in our state, and some are very concerned about uh, future childbearing. And finally, I, I hope you can read this, um, so there are some patients who don't think they can access the future therapies for whatever reason. Some are perhaps here uh, in this country for a few years and planning to return to their home country, and they ask me, like, I don't know if I'm going to have even triple therapy when I return to my home country, et cetera. So there is a need to treat hepatitis C, I believe, in many patients. Uh, treatment is effective, and SVR produces benefits. However, currently available therapies carry risks and toxicities, and today's treatment decisions are currently being made in the context of future uh, treatments. So let's, actually, this is a complete repeat. This is the same patient. I just kind of wanted to see if this talk affected things at all. So if you don't mind, we'll try to, again, it's the same choices, um, same patient. Um, treat with PEG-RIBA, do not use the protease inhibitor due to lack of data. Treat with PEG-RIBA protease inhibitor. Treat with PEG protease inhibitor, avoid ribavirin, or do not treat now. Wait for better care. Oh, so that number actually went up significantly. Now, let's have you hear the talk about future therapies and see if that number goes back down. All right, so successful treatment of hepatitis C, this is the post-test question, particularly for pharmacy credits, uh, results in a reduction of liver-related complications of what amount? I think it's closest to 80%. And uh, these were the pre and post tests. Okay. So I'd like to thank the Department of Public Health who shared those interesting slides um, from our state and Ray Chung who provided a couple slides and again to the IAS USA. Thank you very much for your attention. I'm happy to take some questions. Great. So let's start with some audience questions. Is response-guided therapy applicable to co-infected patients, ah. or do they need the full 48 weeks? So the short answer is uh, response-guided therapy has not been tested in um, co-infected patients sufficiently to recommend its use. And does hepatitis B and C co-infection change how you treat the patient? Right. So they're Yes, it does. So it, it is, patients are at increased risk for um, progression if they have both. And um, so you, I think you're more likely to actually get a liver biopsy to help define the disease. Uh, so that's at least how it might affect the workup. And um, yes, and you need to co-treat both. And pegylated interferon can work for both, depending on the situation. But um, it gets very complicated, as, as uh, Mary well knows. Microphone. Dr. Kim, thank you for your talk. I've, I've always been impressed by the side effects of interferon and ribavirin. What is the actual death rate from people taking those two drugs? What is the actual death rate? So, um, uh, so I guess there's a couple of questions embedded in there. Like, what percentage of patients die on interferon? Now, I don't know the answer to that exactly. I don't know if there's people in the back of the room who've run these large registration trials. Um, I'm looking at someone in particular who may have that, but. Um, Mark, do you? Well, the cupic data. Well, okay, right. So cirrhotic patients, right. So there is a, uh, I didn't go over that because there will be some discussion about the management of cirrhosis. 
But yes, if you're cirrhotic, you do have a chance. Um, and I, the, depending on the trial, some co-infected trials had, had as high of a 10% rate of decompensation and death if you had cirrhosis and um, proceeded on to treatment. Other studies seem to be more on the order of 5%. And I guess the pulmonary side effects um, of interferon, which are incredibly rare, but I've had two cases, and they end up in the ICU intubated. That's a, right. a rare and dangerous. Absolutely, and some, you know, cirrhotic patients in particular, um, they already have trouble with bacterial infections and then you um, uh, give them these drugs, make them feel miserable, and uh, some patients do become septic and uh, have uh, severe complications. Although overall, if you look at interferon um, trials, you do not see terribly increased rates of bacterial infections, but there are subpopulations that you do worry about. And so the patients who need it the most are unfortunately the ones at most risk and they're at least likely to respond. So we're kind of in a pickle, but nonetheless, this is what we have to offer them in 2013. And uh, we don't know what the access to it throughout the country is going to be for these novel therapies. Someone in the audience wants you to define mild versus moderate disease using staging, if something. Right. So, um, so that was somewhat deliberately vague. I think moderate disease kind of used to be kind of two. Um, there are many patient, many providers who are now deferring threes and considering that kind of moderate, uh, and this is on a one to four scale, and mild being zero to one. What are the rates of viral breakthrough on bisepravir or telaprevir regimens? What are the exact rates? I think that's yeah. what the question said. I'm glad you're answering it. Yeah, we can always make coming, David answer. That's not coming back to me on the, on the, off the top of my head. Um, it's it's Dr. definitely less than 10%. It's not, it's not the, yeah, exactly. In the new era of HCV treatment, do we really care so much about IL-28 status? That's another good question. We have actually spent quite a bit of time today thinking about IL-28 and whether it um, remains relevant. Um, well, I think um, for this triple therapy, you're still using interferon and you can still help predict um, uh, for a patient who might be on the edge and, and you know, they're cirrhotic and whatnot, you could say, well, at least you have IL-28B in your favor, even though you have other factors that are not in your favor and that might convince a reluctant patient to go over the top. And, uh, and do treatment. I have to say IL-28B, it's very interesting talking with a lot of people. It seems like it goes in waves, like we become a fan of it, then we kind of stop using it for a while because we think uh, maybe it doesn't affect our treatment decisions so much and then we come back to it. So that at least has been the pattern over the last couple of years during this protease inhibitor era that, that I do find it uh, still useful at times. And do insurers um, refuse bisepravir or telaprevir in IL-28BCC mm. mild disease? So I confess that I come from a state which has this so-called Romney care and um, has uh, more universal care. And we've actually never had a problem with reimbursement for anything, but I do know other states have these problems. So I can't unfortunately speak from personal experience since um, usually those tests do get reimbursed. Do we have any other questions from the audience? So I, in your personal practice, are you treating F0 and F1? Well, so we, first of all, I do see acute. Because the audience wants to know. Oh, that's an acute yeah. question. <laughs> so um, 
I, I currently do not, um, if they're in their chronic phase. I do have, some, I do see quite a number of acutely infected individuals. I kind of mentioned that there are many transmissions going on in our state due to opiate abuse and whatnot, and certain individuals become eligible for, for acute treatment, which is shortened in duration and, and fairly straightforward compared to 48 weeks of, of triple therapy. Because you don't necessarily need the protease inhibitor in those situations. Um, some people will add protease inhibitor for co-infection based on a recent abstract um, presented at the last CROI meeting. But so acute disease, those patients are, you know, low fibrosis. So yes, those patients might be eligible because it's kind of much easier and less costly to treat them at that stage. You know, um, but yeah, in the general, the F0, SF1s, I, I, I encourage not to pursue these therapies. Um, there is one that I treated because she's planning to return to um, uh, another country in three years due to work situation. And she doesn't know if uh, these novel interferon sparing and free regimens will be there. And I know you talked about the percentage of patients who go on to develop cirrhosis. How many patients have mild disease for their life? How many patients have mild disease for their yeah. entire life? You know, that's a very interesting question because the natural history studies also um, kind of depends on who you looked at. We do know that the age of when you acquired the infection matters a great deal. So for instance, if you looked at young military recruits or young women, uh, women also progress at a slow rate, um, that there were very um, high rates of having minimal liver disease in those individuals in those natural history studies. That being said, that's what we base that kind of average 20% number on. I do wonder what happens as this baby boomer cohort ages as women go through menopause and perhaps these protective effects of hormones uh, go away, um, it, it is possible that we might see more unappreciated liver disease as people age. We do know that the immune system ages, for instance, and that other outcomes start to worsen. And so um, I'm not sure the natural history is fully worked out as patients get older and older. I've run out of questions up here. A lot of questions. <laughs> Are there I'm any questions on the floor? Well, in that case, let's adjourn for morning break, and you can ask Dr. Kim questions then. I'd like to thank him very much for a really splendid talk. Thank you.